Greetings, everyone, and a very warm welcome to another edition of the Proposal Works podcast, where we talk with proposal experts who share real stories of how they win. I'm your host, Pete Nichols. I'm coming to you from Copenhagen in Denmark, and I'm joined today by Jeremy Brim. Jeremy, very good day to you. Where are you today? Thank you, Pete, and thank you for having me. Uh, I'm in Cambridgeshire in the UK today, back at home today. And a very hot one in Cambridge, from what I hear from UK friends. Yeah, it's it's just starting to cool off, so it's it's around half past five in the evening here as we're recording, and it's still 25 degrees, and it was 29 during the day, which is, you know, not unheard of, but not a little bit unpleasant in the UK, I would say, for us. Yeah, uncomfortable for the office in the loft situation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I'm coming to you live from my shed. So I've got fishing gear and bikes and all sorts behind me rather than my usual office because it's yeah, too hot in the roof today. I'm glad you could join us. So great to see you, Jeremy. Uh, for our listeners, if you haven't yet heard of Jeremy Brim, Jeremy is based in the UK and brings 20 years of experience as a capture and bid management professional across both public and private sectors, leading successful bid functions, spanning professional services, outsourcing, construction, Jeremy has secured an enviable collection of high-profile projects, programs, and frameworks with blue-chip clients around the globe. And Jeremy founded Growth Ignition in 2018, where he works with leadership teams to plan and execute interventions across the sales cycle. And Jeremy, there's a few other things that aren't on your uh, published profile, but I see on your LinkedIn, because you are an APMP accredited trainer. You are the host of your own podcast, The Red Review which has been running for over two years, and I've caught a few of those episodes, and a role on various boards as well. So you keep yourself busy. Your capture manager is one of the things that you do. So our topic for today is capture if you can. Let's kick it off. Jeremy, who's your ideal client and what do they truly want? Oh, wow, that's a good question. So I think an ideal client for me is one that lets you engage or or actively wants you to engage with them far, far, far before an ITT is even written. One that you can engage with to co-solution the answer to their problems, to come up with the most valuable way of of delivering the business outcome or the social outcome that they're they're looking to achieve. That's the utopia. And the utopia is that you get to negotiate that piece of work. You know, your competition never even hear of it until it hits the press that you've delivered it. Now, that's very different to a lot of the speakers that we've had on the show so far who are the proposal writers. They get the bid. The organization says, we're responding to this. Let's give it our best shot. And hopefully it's gone through a bid, no bid process to decide whether it's something you should be bidding on anyway. So you're talking about something that is much further up the food chain in the decision-making process of where the business is heading. So let's expand on that. What are the kind of problems that they normally face at that part of the business cycle? What does that look like? Yes, it's really interesting. So because because I'm a bidding professional by my true background, as it were, what I started out as a lad doing, I get typecast often, you know, I get senior execs asking me to come and work on bids or engaging with their bid teams in teaching them how to write bids and all of this good stuff. And I'm very happy to do that, but very often either in the pre-engagement where I'm, I'm working with them to shape their course that they want me to deliver or in conversations just around work winning in that organization. You, 
you tend to find that there's the classic challenges that they're bidding too much. They're bidding for opportunities that they're never going to win. You know, obviously their, their bid decision approach is, is flawed. You know, their win rates are very low. And actually what they haven't clicked, which is what we spend actually most of our consulting time in growth ignition doing, is upstream where the, the real prize is to be had. Because, you know, procurement friends of mine will never say publicly, but they'll tell me over a beer that they would say they'd estimate more than 60% of the decision-making power in a, a procurement decision happens before the ITT is ever released, right? Because if you look at the Chartered Institute of Purchasing and Supplies uh, strategic sourcing process, which is kind of part of what they learn is part of their studies to become professional procurement people on the other side of the fence to us. Most of the activity happens before they execute the procurement. You know, they've got their their category strategy piece. They've got their business strategy piece on the actual need for whatever it is that they're looking to procure. And so as a supplier in whatever market, really, if you can engage them whilst they're in that thinking process, you've got a much higher chance of a converting the business, but actually converting business that's far more profitable for you and for them. Because the utopia should be that you come up with a solution that's so valuable for them that they can't go to anyone else. And you get to take a share of that value you create in effect is, is what we actually all do in business and in life. We're all taking a share of the value that we create for organizations or for clients. And so if you look at the world that way, it kind of changes the game for for bidding people because bidding people as i say they should be snipers not infantry you know we're, we're there to take that one important shot or you know a year rather than bidding 100 bids and, and winning 10 wouldn't you want to win one that's worth the same as the 100 you know so yeah that's that's where i think the challenge lies is really is really getting ahead of the game they're getting ahead of the game so the upstream to work out if you are going to take one shot what should that be? And positioning that maybe the ITT, the tender won't even be released if it's something that meets whatever criteria that doesn't require that. What mistakes do you see? Because you mentioned about uh, one mistake of, of just bidding on things, too many things. What are the mistakes that you see companies make when they are trying to influence upstream that way? What are the things that they do that don't work out? I see a lot of organizations scattergun their contact so just randomly talking to anyone uh, rather than having a really focused campaign around either an opportunity or if a scale above that so actually there's kind of a a continuum if you like from business plan strategically at the top so your three to five year business plan the business is going over there it's going to turn over so much we're going to have so many people etc which should be so often in business uh, when I'm engaging boards, that tends to be a spreadsheet with some numbers in it when actually it should be a market research-led exercise that tells you where the money is going to be and which types of clients you want to work with and all that kind of stuff. The level below that is then account management of your key accounts and or prospects, right? And so there's another activity space there that bidding people are actually really well adept at working in and so i guess where i'm going with the conversation is bidding professionals are fantastic defensive midfielders if you like if you want to use a soccer term for for the rest of the business because we're really good at process we're really good at the right sort of detail and understanding clients we have empathy 
and we understand how to pull the strings of the business to get a valuable proposition out of it and get a coherent story out of it. But uh, if you wait until an ITT comes out from a client, you've missed all of that opportunity to align that activity in, in advance. So I'd much rather that bid teams expanded their sphere of influence in their business and started writing white papers for clients on how you might be able to add value to their business or you know, their out the outcomes they're looking for as part of an account management piece or certainly a capture piece for a specific opportunity that's a year away or or actually that they don't even know they need. So that's yeah, that's the kind of space really. It's it's about us as a discipline gravitating upstream for me. That business planning and then to the account planning, there's a lot of noise in the CRM space uh, around this um, uh, account-based marketing and ABM and a whole plethora of tools coming out around that. Do you see the situation is improving there of companies getting better at being focused on, on an account and the roles that the different stakeholders play to influence? Not really. So actually, and I didn't finish answering the, the last question properly, did I? So that in terms of the mistakes that I see made, it's people randomly talking to people in the client organization without a campaign, without you know an agreement. So in really basic terms, one of the things I teach in the bidding stuff, let alone capture, is as an account team, pick a leader, first of all. Someone's got to be the account lead who everybody else channels the information into and then build a plan that you're going to, who are the contacts that you know or need to know and in which order do you speak to them? Don't all run off like kids playing, you know, soccer, five-a-side soccer and all chasing the ball, you know, agree in order because you can then have that first stop conversation and use the outcomes from that conversation to inform the second one and the third one and the fourth one, et cetera. So it builds momentum. These things are all about building momentum. And so, in terms of the CRM space, it's really interesting that you mention it because the dirty secret is, you know, if you can go and buy yourself, uh, you know, a big brand. I better not say names in case they sue me, had I? But you can go and buy one of those big, expensive CRM platforms. And there is some value in people putting their contacts in it. And it's quite smart if you can use it for your pipeline management. That kind of drives some behaviors around people using it. But in reality, the real adoption of CRM platforms is spectacularly low. And that because people treat it like an IT project, not a cultural change project. And so the organizations that do get the value out of it are the ones that really go on the journey with it and it becomes part of the DNA of the business. But what you tend to find is the organizations that sell those platforms aren't very good at that bit. You need to find some professionals and build some capability, really build a proper business case about the transformation that you're looking for in how you win work. But to be honest, putting all those systems and, and big numbers and stuff to one side, 80% of your turnover should come from existing clients. And so it's not particularly in B2B businesses or B2G businesses rather than B2C. So B2C who have got lots of tiny things going on. I can't really speak to that because it's not my space, but 80% of your turnover should really come from existing clients. And so it's about how you look after those existing clients rather than a database-led approach of almost email marketing, it's, it's all right. You know, you can have the user journey coming through your website and funnel and all that kind of caper. But fundamentally, if you don't know the partner's name of the person who signs the checks in your biggest client, you're in trouble. 
if you don't know what's on their personal scorecard that gets them their appraisal score and their bonus at the end of the year, you're in deep shit. So, you know, that's that's where you want to be, right? And that doesn't take an nth degree of systems. Uh, what it needs is a fairly simple account plan and then maybe some measurement in your staff's appraisals in when that account plan was last updated, what the net promoter score, client feedback score was from that client. And when you last did an annual report for them, quite a nice thing to do is to go and you know, see a client and take them through an annual report of your business's performance for them in the last year and what you're going to do for them in the coming year and build some commitments in that kind of stuff. There ain't any systems that do that. You need to create a little campaign group. Maybe if it's only even for your top five clients or top 20 clients, but what you'll find is there's probably quite a small number of clients that actually steer the, the vision of your business or the future of your business. That uh, ABM, that that account-based M, the, the M is is generally account-based marketing, but what you're describing really sounds more like account-based management, management of the relationship, who all the key relationships are with an existing customer and being able to influence the projects that are going to appear whether it's the challenger sale or other types of methodologies get brought into into play. So could you share with us then, Jeremy, some examples of where you've helped, where you can see that maybe things wouldn't have gone so great, but you've through your training or direct involvement, can you share with us any examples of, of how you've helped? Yeah. So I, I guess the one that I can really talk about because it's finished and it's on our website is uh, I did some work with a business unit of Morgan Sindel in the UK who are a three billion pound turnover main contractor in construction. And I got bought in by one of their regional managing directors of their uh, regional construction business. So the business that builds schools and bits of hospitals and offices and things like that. So built assets rather than infrastructure like rail and roads. And they, they had a little office in a place called Welling Garden City, just north of London, that should turn over a hundred million pounds easily. And some of its competitors turn over 300 million in the same geography. So if anyone knows it, it's the northern home counties was the geography it covered, Hertfordshire, Bedfordshire, Buckinghamshire, and then the northern London boroughs like Enfield and Barnet and places like that. So Wilmot Dixon, for instance, their, their HQ is, is in Hitchin just down the road, I think. And they're doing way more money. And But this business had kind of bumbled along and then really lost its way a bit. So they bought in some new leadership, an area director called Dave Rousel, who's quite a thrusting, fairly young bloke for that kind of gig from Waits. And Dave bought in a couple of uh, other people, was ops director and things like that. And I, I was brought in to work alongside them for their first year, really, on their growth strategy and the execution of it. And so, as I, as I said, kind of that continuum top down there, that's what I delivered for that business unit quite successfully. So I did a whole bunch of market research on where the opportunities were going to be in which sectors in that geography. And then of that, what was addressable for our business unit, i.e. where we were credible, where the competition was weakest, or at least palatable, you know, where the money was going to be, etc. And then we built a business plan out of that, which we agreed. And then I executed that as a growth strategy. So we developed account plans for their top five clients and pursuits. And then as a subset of that, we created a top five capture plans for their key pursuits, the key anchor projects in the pipeline. And that was important for not just winning work reasons. 
the selection of those opportunities were important in terms of the structure and the future of the business. So we selected that some of the five capture plans, for instance, were fairly small projects, but the first project in a program. So we, we'd selected clients to target who had they, what we called platform clients. They had programs of work off into the future. A mistake a lot of clients make is spending a lot of time and effort in pursuing or tendering once in a lifetime projects or pieces of work with clients where you win that piece of work, but then you'll never need to work, talk to them again. Whereas I try and coax clients, my clients into looking for clients that have got programs of work off into the future, which seems really obvious, but you wouldn't be amazed. You'd be amazed how many people don't do that. And so, yeah, but the, the capture plans, some of them were for small first jobs in a program like that but some of them were for bigger projects that were important to win for attracting and retaining people, which is so important these days. You you want to work in a buzzing place that's got some really cool work, some cool stuff to do, you know, and so it's quite important to go and win some sexy projects, we used to say. And uh, we quite successfully did that. So the commission came to an end. I ended up staying for 18 months in the end. I, I left in June last year. And they, so they, when I joined, they turned over 30 million with, by the end of year one, they turned over 45 and this year they've turned over 75 and they're tracking to that hundred next year. So really pleasing outcome by instilling some fairly simple stuff, you know, around that stuff, we put in a B2B strategy. So we looked at that pipeline of opportunities, who were the consultants or influencers that were touching it? Who did we need to meet? You know, did a bit of entertaining that kind of stuff, as you'd expect, and tactical marketing plan around that, key themes, roundtable dinners on key themes that were intersected the pipeline. So there's a bit of a matrix approach there, but none of it rocket science, really. But um, yeah, really, what's lovely is they've got they've brought on some great people. They've got some great youngsters coming through who are now getting to work on those big jobs. So they've they've just won a really fantastic building with the University of Hertfordshire, their engineering building which is quite challenging structurally. It's at, they're going to actually teach you know, sort of high-powered construction methodology in the building, so you've got to do a good job of building the building, right? So that, that's fantastic that they've, they've got their, their, some of the youngsters working on that too. So that, that, was, that was really nice to be part of that. That sounds like a great turnaround story, given the situation that they're in that you described at the start. So this uh, David and uh, others handpicked, presumably, had come into the organisation to affect change, but not everybody would have been you. I imagine that the account teams and, and so forth, were there folks there that then had to go through a change from how they had run things in the past to think differently? And how did that go? Well, like many change projects, the, the slightly sticky bit is that some people will stay on the bus and we'll stick with the change and understand where you're going with that change. So there's a whole vision piece, you know, we're going over there. This is what we stand for, you know, our why, all of that good stuff. And some people, existing staff will buy into that and some staff won't and they get off the bus. And so there probably was a 20, 25% turnover of staff whilst I was there of people who'd been there a long time and, and didn't want to, stay on the on the journey we were going on you know some people retired some people just left and went and got jobs elsewhere and you know that's part of life really that that happens but also there are some people my friend chloe actually who worked for me in effect when i was there who's their business development coordinator 
she hadn't really been particularly well treated, I think, before I'd come along. And her career had sort of bumbled along a bit. She'd been off and had kids and stuff, and they hadn't really engaged her back in the business effectively. Whereas now she's absolutely flying and doing a great job working with Dave on their stuff. I saw actually today one of their newsletter emails come out and it's just really nice some of the stuff they've got going on so and i know she's at the heart of it she looks after a lot of their social value stuff and things so there's some stories there pros and cons better for the for the folks who have, have stayed on there and and created an exciting environment for the others to come through it's probably better for everyone actually because the people who have exited have gone off and got jobs in organizations that would suit them etc so it's to, it's better for everyone all around in the end yeah it wasn't going to go well if it continued as it was by the sound of that no, it would have closed. Yeah, they'd have closed the office yeah. and everyone would have been out of a job. So, and it was on, it was on that sort of wire. So yeah, it's, it's better outcome for everyone. So in that opportunity, or maybe in another, Jeremy, of affecting change like that, what's a really big challenge that you personally faced and, and what you've learned as a takeaway from that? I think actually there's, there's another example. So more recently, after, after I'd finished working with uh, Morgan Sindel, I'd taken on some work with ISG, who are another major contractor. And I think some of the challenge, ISG are a much more fast-moving organisation, much more agile and entrepreneurial, much more aggressive, a bit like Mace, who I'd worked for when I had a real job before I started my own business, but not as good. In truth, Mace are pretty elite stuff. They've got ISG on a bit of a journey. They're fairly immature. And so yeah, I think being fluid and agile and keeping pace with ISG was probably a challenge because I'd, I'd probably been a bit sleepy when I was at Morgan Sindel because the pace of that business was slower. They're bidding lots of smaller things rather than a few a smaller number of big things, let's say. Yeah, that, that challenge was probably keeping pace with all of, all of that change that was going on in the business and how you brief senior people and take them with you. So we've got there in the end and I've successfully onboarded, I guess, my uh, so the role with ISG was I sat in as director of winning work nationally for six months while they recruited someone into that role. And then I've carried on with a capability development program. So they're buying one of our enterprise bid toolkit sites as their internal, not just bid process, actually, it's, it's got a work stream for bids, capture, and for account management, actually. So we've digitized their processes, baked training content into that. But that project's been quite challenging because the business has changed and you know, all of that kind of stuff as we're trying to, it's a bit like nailing jelly to a wall. So I, I had to really think about my, in the end, my stakeholder engagement skills, briefing people properly, keeping them up to speed, using some technology to do that with a team site, that kind of stuff. What was it about that, do you think, that you changed the most to adapt? I think it was just getting back to, of course, this was during the pandemic. So whereas my work with Morgan Cinder was pre-pandemic, so I was in the office with people quite a lot. Whereas, yeah, the ISG thing, it was people spread across the country, but also, you know, we were all isolated for quite a lot of the work. And so it was just relearning that I needed to, you know, people couldn't be out of sight, out of mind. You need to pick up the phone to people and talk to them and keep them updated rather than just relying on them reading an email perhaps or just the odd message in a team site or something. I had to relearn a skill, which is a core skill of mine back in the day, is you know, picking up the phone, going and seeing people, making stuff happen. And so yeah, I had to I had to get back into that, I'd say. It's incredible how uh, smartphones, it seems to be the the one app that gets almost no usage is actually just phoning people now. The the, the phones do everything but that, which uh, personally 
you know, I miss that. Uh, you just get on the phone. It always seems to need to be a Zoom meeting. So I'm pleased to hear that you adapted and just just call people, give them an update. What is it about what you do, Jeremy, that really floats your boat in all of the work that you do here, this transformational work at the upstream end? What is it about that that you find most fulfilling? It's interesting because I was thinking about this the other day. It's It's changed quite a bit. So, you know, when I was younger and had more hair, less weight and more energy, you know, it was about winning bids, you know, really big. You know, I've worked, I've been very, very lucky to work with some really sensational bid teams and sales teams and got to be part of some really big wins, like all the cost management of all of the Qatar World Cup Stadia, the program office for all of Microsoft's estate all around the world, all of Goldman Sachs estate, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium in the UK, Battersea Power Station in the UK. You know, these are all CapEx-wise, more than a billion dollars each. And um, you know, being part of those teams or touching those or you know, having people work for me who are engaged in those, it's a really proud moment. It's quite nice. When I worked for Mace, who were the people who built the Shard and the London Eye, for instance, uh, I, I did four and a half years there as the business partner for growth to the board for the construction business. And if I'd had a night out in London on a Friday night, for instance, and stayed in a hotel, what I used to really love was getting an Uber rather than taking the tube back to King's Cross to get the train home and getting the driver to drive down the embankment. Because if you drive down the embankment, there are a number of mace buildings that they built all the way down there from the mayor's office to you know, more London to all sorts of stuff and including the Shard. And it, it's really, I find it quite fun, you know, irritating Uber drivers by pointing out all these buildings. It's quite, it's quite a nice thing to have been involved in. But actually, as I've got older, it's it's less about individual big deals and more about the success of business businesses or business units that I'm working with. And, and actually, the individual leaders, it's quite difficult for some leaders to work with me because I'm probably better than them at a few things. They're going to be better than me at a lot of things, but I'm better than them at things that are fairly overt in terms of winning work. And I'm not backwards in coming forwards, I guess, in... in telling them things and it can be quite challenging. I have to have some quite difficult conversations with people, but I have to remind them that I'm there to make them successful. I'm a caddy, not, not a golfer. And, you know, it's their success, which is my success, you know? And so that's why you know, we, I'm quite good friends with the guys that I worked with at Morgan Sindel in that senior team, because I really enjoyed the journey and I, I take great pride in their success now, because they're probably going to go on, you know, and, and I was only playing a part in it. They had to do a lot of work, you know, to make it happen. But it's quite nice that the strategy stuff that I did with them, they believed in, bought into, and we executed. And they've gone and won some stuff that's changed the, the direction of that office, that business, for the better. And they'll probably go on and get promoted and all that sort of stuff in the fullness of time off the back of some of that. So I, I take a lot more pride in that now. That's what gets me out in bed, out of bed, I would say. That's a nice shift to... Um the success of, of people from taking an Uber driver on a drive through your trophy cabinet, which is a pretty darn impressive trophy cabinet when you can point at these um, billion dollar plus developments. So on the, on the people side, in that leadership position, how well do you find today, Jeremy, that even the term capture management, our, our session today is on capture if you can, how well understood if you talk about capture that they know what you mean really 
it depends where you are in the world. So it's it's quite interesting. The maturity, I talk about maturity quite a lot, which sounds a bit management consultancy, but it, it sort of does the job until I can think of a better word. But yeah, the maturity is different in capture around the world. So in the States on the East Coast, particularly linked to Washington, so around the defense market, you know, big multi-billion dollar defense deals, all that sort of stuff, there are lots of people who have the title capture manager or capture lead. And relatively speaking, it's pretty mature, which is unusual. So normally, if you talk about bidding and proposals, and I'm sorry, the Americans won't like this because they might not see it coming, but probably if we, if we had a real vote on it, the UK is actually probably the leading nation in bidding in the world. And a lot of other nations are kind of their approaches, their procurement approaches, et cetera, derivatives off of that historic UK lead. Now, I should say, I think the UK will lose that in in the next decade, I would guess, as we're de-evolving a bit here, Brexit and all that. But the Americans have tended to be a bit behind in proposals and bidding, despite the fact that the APMP is American. You know, our association, the professional body for proposals, is, is American and been established for 30 years. It's been quite focused in some little enclaves, I would say, in the States where there was a bit more professionalism around it. Whereas captures the opposite. In the States, they're they're more mature than us in Europe by quite some distance. So one of the ways that you can tell the maturity is if you you look at LinkedIn, at the jobs bit of LinkedIn, and search for capture or capture manager, all of the jobs that come up pretty much are in the States. There's hardly anything in Europe. There's the odd people here that work for American organizations or in certain sub markets like bits of defense organizations here uh, suppliers to the dio and things like that it's in its infancy here and even talking to people like tony round at the apmp for instance putting on a capture conference in that's got a european element to it is a bit of a risk because there aren't that many people get it yet but it is building, and it's important that it builds, as we've talked about in terms of the, the I think the sphere, how bidding people build their sphere of influence is through capture back up that arc to account management and beyond to become the sort of heart, the engine room of work winning in the business. I think capture is the next key step, and we, my business, spent a lot of time and effort in last year through the pandemic in focusing on that space. You know, la- launching capture services, consulting services. We launched the first APMP accredited course in Capture, both video-based and live webinar-based. Last year for the, the Capture Practitioner accreditation that the APMP launched, we launched our training within a week of them launching the accreditation, which took a few late nights and a weekend of work for me to beat the competition to that. Because it is important, but it, it's in its infancy, I would say, in, in the UK. There are only a small number of organizations that are anywhere near elite in it, I would say. What do you think is a standout characteristic then of what's happening on the East Coast in that that leadership capture position? What are they doing differently? So it's interesting. I I had a podcast episode on my podcast with a lady called Jen, who's a capture manager for Lidos, on this subject of the difference between capture in the States and in the UK or Europe, I guess. And it was really quite interesting that they're in my world of capture we just operate it's running a campaign pre-bid and we use that campaign to position for hopefully a negotiation but worst case we've shaped the the procurement with the client right and then you hand that on to 
the bid function and they take that on and you might stick around and get drawn into some strategy stuff and reviews but you, you kind of hand it on whereas in the states it's quite interesting their capture managers actually see opportunities through from cradle to grave all the way through and so in effect they act as a leader in that bid or proposal when it's a when it's a live deal in effect all, all the way through to mobilization even working on the mobilization of it which thinking it through is actually pretty smart isn't it it's an investment but if your deals are big enough or you believe in the return on investment for that cost of sale, I think that's probably a smart move because you, you, you and I both worked on bids, I'm sure, where you kind of think to yourself, well, hang on, we've, we've done all of this engagement with the client before and we're, we don't seem to be pulling it through into the bid. Or you, know, you get through to the review and think you, know, you get invited to review on a bid and you think, well, why haven't you looked at all that stuff, all the conversations we had with the client before the tender came out? We've been talking to them for years. You know, for some reason, when bid teams get focused on a bid, they, they get so focused on it, they forget what's happened before. So that continuity makes some sense to me. I think that's that's clever, although probably obvious. Yeah, that, that end-to-end ownership right through. So what would be a valuable tip then as we leave today, Jeremy? We've, we've talked capture if you can. So it's all about capture, which sounds like that's an area that we're probably going to see quite a bit of change in. What valuable tips or, or resources could you suggest that the listener could take away and, and might help them today? I think a key thing to do if you're a bidding person that's you know concerned about the amount of bids that you're working on or certainly losing more than you'd hope, I think I'd try and deploy some upward mentoring. So, you know, set on a bid, get yourself a war room, invite senior, you know, a senior sponsor. Because the key thing here is what we find in all the transformation stuff we do is the biggest defining factor in success is having sponsorship from hopefully a board member, but certainly someone senior. So get yourself a sponsor and upward mentor them on what you need or the direction of travel you think that the business should go in around how it approaches work winning. And so if you can open their eyes to making good bid decisions is the first step, obviously, as you know, anyone would really, and showing them some data on your win rates and where you've been successful and client feedback on where you haven't, that kind of stuff, and build from there, but build towards Capture. If it's appropriate for your business, I mean, Capture works where you're bidding a fairly small number of bigger deals. It might be that actually if you're bidding lots of mini bids, in a marketplace, lots of smaller bids that account man focusing on account management is the more important piece. You're looking to steer the oil tanker rather than, you know, a, an individual opportunity. But the the point is, use upward mentoring, engage a sponsor to try and build your sphere of influence up the pipeline, so that you become masters of your own destiny. Because I've been there. It's horrible when you feel helpless when you're bidding, you know, being forced to bid everything your win rates sub 10%, all that sort of stuff. And people, stakeholders around you say, oh, that's just our market and it's bullshit. It's not. In any marketplace, you can find a way to stem the tide and you know really drive success. So, But it's it's about getting upstream and, and getting some decent strategy in play. Yeah, certainly demotivating if you're, if you're losing a lot of them. But then it's having the courage to uh, reach out to the execs we get comfortable in the conversation that you're going to have with someone like that, they'd be ready to answer the questions that they're going to ask. So um, one of the earlier episodes we we had with uh, Catherine Bennett from Lupio, 
really touched on the need to build that business acumen, which is great. So I guess just for the, the time today, Jeremy, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thanks for sharing your experience with us. What's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Find me on LinkedIn, Jeremy Brim, B-R-I-M for mother. It's probably the easiest way or go to our main website, growthignition.co.uk and you can uh, link out to everything. Oh, and of course, you can find the Red Review podcast on all major platforms alongside yours. You can find our Patreon community on Patreon as well, our online community. Fantastic. I'll make sure we've got the relevant links in the show notes. And just to wrap up, Jeremy, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me, Pete. Really good chat. It was good to see you. Thank you.